Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. I have, alas, studied philosophy, jurisprudence and medicine too, and worst of all, theology, with keen endeavor through and through. And here I am, for all my lore, the wretched fool I was before, called Master of Arts and Doctor to Boot. For ten years almost I confute, and up and down, wherever it goes, I drag my students by the nose, and see that for all our science and art, we can know nothing. It burns my heart. Of course I'm smarter than all the shysters, the doctors, teachers, scribes, and Christers. No scruple nor doubt could make me ill. I'm not afraid of the devil or hell. But, therefore, I also lack all delight. Do not fancy that I could know anything right. Do not fancy that I could teach or assert what would better mankind or what might convert. I also have neither money nor treasures, no worldly honors or earthly pleasures. No dog would want to live longer this way. Hence, I've yielded to magic to see whether the spirit's mouth and might would bring some mysteries to light. That I need not work and woe, go on to say what I don't know, that I might see what secret force hides in the world and rules its course, envisage the creative blazes instead of rummaging in phrases. Good morning and welcome. I'm William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. We are a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 16th day of December, folks, and this is our... 163rd broadcast. Whether we are talking history or mystery, the truth of our reality is that our mom and pop don't get along and that we are children of divorce. In fact, science and religion seems to have the kind of relationship that Taylor Swift is always singing about on the radios these days. So today, despite our parents' enlightenment, we are taking a hard look at reality and wondering if science just might be wrong. Perhaps about everything. Hello and welcome, Doug here, and today we're sharing 42 minutes with a skeptic, attempting to get at the big picture and maybe finding the practical limits of our current paradigm. This morning we have the pleasure of meeting Alex Sakaris, host of Skeptigo, a podcast that follows the data wherever it leads and explores the possibility that science as we know it might be at a tipping point. It does so with the top thinkers and pointed discussions about the questions that matter most. More information about the show can be found at Skeptico.com. Most recently, these 200-plus hours of interviews have culminated in a new book by Mr. Sakaris, Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything, published by Anomalous Books at the beginning of this month. More information about the book can be found at WhySciencesWrong.com. The book is a pleasure to read, and we are happy to be meeting Mr. Sakaris today. Hello. How are you? Doing great, Doug. Thanks for that awesome introduction. I, I don't know if I could have read that as perfectly as you did. And uh, Will, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me on. You bet. 
Well, let's let's just get right into it. You take you take a pretty hard line in the book about why science is wrong. Could you explain your thesis to our listeners? Well, it's kind of a long time coming, as you described in the introduction. You know, I really started this Skeptico project with a very kind of down to earth. Let's get at the facts here, ma'am. I thought there was, I thought there was this a reality to this play that we seen played out between science and religion, between skepticism and believers and all that stuff. So I just sought to try and pull it apart by going and interviewing the people that seem to be getting the most heat in the science community, the people who are on the fringes, parapsychologists, people who are studying near-death experience. But I always wanted to take a scientific approach. I wanted to go to people who are publishing in peer-reviewed journals and trying to adhere to the scientific method, and I wanted to find out what they were saying. So that was really my method for this thing. And as far as you know, what I discovered and why I titled the book the way I did is I really came to kind of gradually understand the absurdity of scientists, of, of the scientific assertion that consciousness, our consciousness, doesn't really exist. That is, it's an illusion created by our brain. I think that's an absurd idea. It'd be okay if it was true, but I think it's an absurd idea. And I think from talking to a lot of really well-qualified people, there's a lot of really good science that just sh falsifies that and shows just how ridiculous that idea is. So if you get consciousness wrong, then you really can't get a lot right, at least in my opinion. I mean, that is our moment-to-moment -moment experience. That is where we came from. What is the origin of that little voice inside our head? That is where do we go after this physical body ends? I mean, if you don't understand consciousness, you can't even begin to approach any of those questions. So what you do is what science has done is kind of just fudge it, you know, and just kind of work around it and say, well, you know, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Let's go on and do something else. Quantum physics, does it get consciousness? Well... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I, I don't think, you know, one of the most uh, famous, and I think you guys did a show on Feynman, you know, Richard Feynman, the famous uh, physicist, quantum physics guy, extraordinaire, Nobel Prize winner. You know, he had a great quote that I think can be paraphrased to fit the stuff that you guys do at Sync Book and a lot of the stuff that I do at Skeptico. And he said, you know, Anyone who claims that they understand quantum physics is either a liar or a fool. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, yeah. but it, it, it's, that is the essence of it, right? So we can say, oh, you know, quantum physics kind of comes close with the observer effect and some of the other uh, peculiar, you know, spooky action at a distance. But we have no clue what that really is. All we can say is it points to a mystery, but it doesn't really answer the mystery, right? Yeah. And then in the, in the past, it, one of the th things that I think a lot of people fail to realize is that when we talk about models for reality, that isn't literal reality. And so the way science often devises analogs of how to describe what we think is going on, oftentimes we latch onto that and think, oh, this is what's going on. 
Exactly. I mean, th that's a parallel I see between what you guys are doing at SyncBook and at 42 Minutes, which, by the way, is really an excellent show. I enjoy it. I'm a fan of it. I think you guys do a great job. Oh, but, stop. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. My, you know, my pod, uh, my little iPod is full and I haven't gotten to all of them, but they're, they're really great. And you do high production value too, which needs to be appreciated. But he, here's the parallel, I think, and you kind of touched on it, Doug. I think it's this idea of metaphor, you know? It's like one of the things I appreciate about what you guys do with the synchro, synchro mystic kind of stuff is you play the line between reality and metaphor. So is there mm -hmm. a reality to these synchronicities? Hey, that's a question that I think you have to start with, right? And you have to drill into that. And you have to look at the data and you have to look at people that have really tried to analyze that. You know, a guy who's been a friend of the Skeptico show and wrote an amazing book about his uh, lucid dreaming experience is a guy named Andy Paquette and um, soon to be Dr. Andy Paquette finishing his PhD. But he's chronicled all these incredible uh, precognitive dreams that he's had and all these synchronistic events that go with them, right? And he's done it in a very, very rigorous way with this database and tried to cross-correlate and do all these amazing statistics. Not that that's the be-all, end-all, but I think you have to take that approach. You have to say, is there a reality to a phenomenon? And you could take a phenomenon that I've looked at, like near-death experience or psychic medium communication, or you can take synchronicity. But the first step is to say, Okay, is there a reality to it? I think the answer when it comes to synchronicities is uh, uh, unquestionably there's a reality to it. But then it becomes, well, what does that mean? And that's where everyone wants to jump, you know, jump in and say, oh, it means this, it means that. And I think you guys do a nice job of not allowing yourself to be pinned down, you know, and say it is metaphorical. It can mean this or it can mean that. It can mean your own journey. And I think there's a direct parallel with what I've found, you know. So you take consciousness. And again, I'm going to, I can't help. I get worked up and I get kind of this pissed off tone. But the idea that science has, science as we know it, right? Let's qualify that, right? So there's no absolute science. There's no perfect science. You go to the university, you go to the sociology department, they say science is one thing. You go to psychology, they say it's another. Physicists say it's, says it's another. I'm talking about what we get fed through the mainstream media, through the science media, through our education system. It's science, what science knows. And fundamental to that is this idea that your minute-by-minute -minute experience is an illusion. It is created solely by your brain. You are a biological robot, and there's nothing to it. And that the fact that so many have swallowed that, or at least probably more accurately, people just march in step with it because it's not, it's not viable to fight against that in any kind of meaningful way if you're in academia. This is what I've found. This is what I've discovered in talking to all these maverick scientists who do good work and yet are shunned and ignored and all the rest of that stuff. So the fact that we have that major disconnect, that mismatch between what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not an illusion. My experience is an illusion. We have that mismatch between, between what we experience and what we're being fed back by this awesomely powerful kind of machine creates a real kind of 
cognitive craziness in a lot of us. And, and, and that, I guess, is where I think there, there's a parallel between what I've discovered and I think what you guys have discovered, but I don't know. I, I kind of laid a lot on the table there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, could you? Yes, that's. Um... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for all the compliments. Could you Indeed. quickly? Though, so one of the uh, distinctions we should make, though, is the difference between science, the process, and science, the religion. No, we we don't we don't really need. That's another false, you know, dichotomy, false separation. Oh, the scientific method, you know, it's it's pure and it's wonderful. Okay, uh, in a certain way that that might be true, but we can only talk about science as it's come to, as it comes through to us, you know, systematically in terms of what we get, what we're delivered at the end of the day. Well, I wonder about the box that science has put us in. And so, like, oftentimes when people are talking about science, it's more of, like, scientism. It's, It's this dogma that we end up with at the end of the day it's it's the operating system that we have to agree to if this is going to be our lens through which we see reality and i wonder if it wouldn't be better to say materialism because it seems like really that in a nutshell is where we end up that we've all agreed that material is all that there is and there's nothing beyond material and therefore we actually have a tool to measure that material and explain what is there. I'm totally with you, Doug, but I have to say <laughs> I've battled this for a while now, and that distinction, because people <laughs> people recoil with the idea that science is wrong? Oh my God, science is wrong about almost everything? No, let's preserve science. Let me find a pure <laughs> science that isn't wrong, a true science that isn't wrong. I say bullshit. No, science is wrong fundamentally wrong if it's not if it's if science isn't wrong then let's start really having we'll, we'll do the old uh, ben franklin right we'll put on one side of the scale stuff that science is right about okay so it's right about uh, vaccines to a limited sense except that the cdc has just come out and said that they faked right. all that cdc all that uh, data about vaccines when it when and poor dr wakefield got run out of town and now they say oh yeah well we fudged the numbers but they're right about uh, antibiotics, let's say. That's safer. They're, they're right about antibiotics. They're right about lasers. Now, let's put over on the other scale. They're wrong about who you are. They're wrong about every minute-by-minute minute experience that you have. They're wrong about what happens to you after you die. They're wrong about your connection to all the people in your life that you care about, even the ones you don't care about. Okay, so is the scale on the other side now getting heavy? Is there anything we can put over on the other side? Oh, uh, nuclear, nuclear vision? <laughs> oh, no, wait. You know, I mean, really, let's, let's lay it out and say, yeah, we're, we live in a world where we can t- feel and touch and be mesmerized by science in the form of, really, engineering, but in the form of these little tablets that we walk around with and the phones and all the rest of that. But I don't think that's a, that measures up to what science is wrong about. So at the end of the day, to keep it simple, science is wrong. Okay, so um, sometimes we, we're just as, this is to switch gears a little bit, but sometimes I play a little game where I say a word, I'll give a few seconds of a pause, and then I'll say a word, and I want you to free associate, and just anywhere that that word takes you, just run with it, okay? Are you ready? Ready. Okay. Placebo. 
Oh man, that's a great one. Mystery. Okay. So what do you what do you think? So so here, here's what I think. Here's the word placebo mystery. Back to our thing. You know, science is right. Science, medicine. We live. We go to the doctor. We get better. All these drugs that we have are measured against placebo, right? What is placebo? Placebo is the mystery, right? Placebo is what does, how does consciousness affect our body? What is the mind-body relationship? And since we have no freaking clue because we don't understand consciousness and we admit that we don't understand consciousness, we put this word on it and we say, okay, your mind-body relationship, we're going to call that placebo. We're going to call it mystery. We're going to put a question mark there. And if this medicine performs 7% better than mystery, we're going to let it in. Now, does that make any real sense at all? I mean, it's okay. You know, back to, the, I think, what Doug was talking about. You know, metaphorically, as a metaphor, you know, as a kind of approximation, kind of understanding, it might work for a little while. But does it really make any sense when we break it down? And then, you know, if we were to add into that measure, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have, have maybe have seen this, we could add in the experimenter effect, right? Mm -hmm. Which we've now found, again, it's a consciousness effect, but the, the consciousness of the people performing the experiment may affect the results, this is a met, this is a proven scientific fact, right? That some experimenters, under the most tightly controlled conditions we can possibly get, at least as close as we can get, get different results than other experimenters. Then add to this: Have you guys seen the bit about the decline effect? The decline effect. Go ahead. Over time, we've seen all these major medical studies have. Uh, have shown that the efficacy that a certain treatment or therapy or medicine have seems to decline over time. We have no idea why. Maybe it's related to, you know, uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick is a Cambridge biologist who kind of pioneered this idea of morphic resonance and mm -hmm. kind of a hundredth monkey. You guys are familiar with that, you know? And oh, yeah, we've talked to him. That's, yeah. So I, I wasn't aware that you had interviewed him, but great guy. You know, and, and here's a, I know I'm bouncing all over the place, but... <laughs> I love this experiment that he did. It's very simple. One of the things that's brilliant about Sheldrick is he devises these just brilliantly simple experiments. So he did a crossword puzzle. He took the London Times, I guess, Sunday crossword puzzle, very famous. He gave it to all these people and he timed them to do it. Then he gave a group of people the Sunday Times crossword puzzle on Monday morning. So now there is a collective consciousness that knows how to do, this is the hypothesis, mm -hmm. that knows how to do that crossword puzzle. Will the people on Monday who have had no, you know, we've controlled for this, so they've had no peek at it or anything like that, no contact with anyone, will they perform better? Well, they do. The people on Monday perform better on average than the people on Sunday suggesting that there is something to this collective consciousness. Again, I think there's a direct parallel to what you guys have looked at with uh, synchronicities, but we're all c somehow connected in this strange way. Again, that seems to be a function of consciousness, but if we don't understand it, if we can't tease it out, we're just dancing in the dark. 
Yeah. I work in a grocery store, and so it seems like the experiment that I'm curious about, and maybe you know if, if this has ever been attempted, is when someone with your their back to you can sense that you're looking at them. Right. You, did Sheldrake. you guys talk to Sheldrake about that? Yeah, Sheldrake even wrote a book about that. The whole, I don't know if it was a book, but I know he's done experiments where he sets up and tries to have the effect of uh, somebody realizing they've been stared at. Yeah, he wrote a book. It's called The Sense of Being Stared At. Right, yep, yep, yep. And, you know, in <laughs> in his research for that book, one of the things that he did, in along with doing experiments, he does, uh, he interviewed people in security, you know, people who work for in, intelligence organizations. And they said, oh, yeah. Oh, that's one of the first things we teach people is when you're tailing somebody, you don't ever stare at the back of them. So, I mean, uh, it's, an, it's another case where, huh. you know, the, the accepted reality of it conflicts with the, the very kind of concrete, narrow, scientific model we have for it. But, you know, you go ask the guy who's, who's doing it every day, goes, oh, yeah, no, you can't do that. Well, have you, you heard of the term body schema? No, what's that mean? Oh, so I listened, there's a, an NPR program called Radio Lab, and they did one about this, uh, these tests in the 50s where they put pilots in a centrifuge, and they spun them until they passed out. And it's interesting because the, you can interpret their results both ways. You can interpret right. that they disconnect, they, they somehow transcend their body for this moment, and so, of course, the materialistic um, explanation is going to say that their brain is confused. And But basically what they're doing is producing OBEs in these pilots. And so there's all these stories of these pilots flying the plane from the wing, you know, observing right. themselves flying. You know, they're wondering why all these pilots were crashing when they encountered so many, so many Gs. And so they had to do these tests. But it, it was really interesting because basically they were inducing out-of-body experiences. Right. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. And it, it, as you alluded to, one of the things that fascinates me about those experiments is the way that it can be interpreted two ways. I think it can really only be interpreted one way, but I think the materialists and the, the people who are skeptically inclined, the, the basically a religious group that hold, wants to hold on to this status quo materialistic, reductionistic kind of view, despite everything, uses that as some kind of debunking. And again, there's a parallel with the placebo effect. So what they, what they wind up saying is, oh, look, here's this guy who induced this funky state where people seem to be out of their body. So that's what must be going on with NDEs, with astral projection, all these other things which would be fine, <laughs> except that it, it, in, in debunking one, you've overthrown the basic fundamental idea of materialism and science as we know it, you know? Because if you can see from a vantage point outside of your body, what does that say about the relationship between your consciousness and your brain? It says that it's fundamentally different than this idea that you are your brain. It just doesn't, doesn't fit, really. Okay, so let's talk about skeptico number 237. 
Oh, no, not 237. Right. But on our show, <laughs> this is a red flag. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, number 237, huh? So <laughs> what, happened, what happened in room 237? I don't know. What's, what was room 237? <laughs> well, room 237 is the room in The Shining where you're not supposed to go. What oh, happened on Skeptigo cool. number 237? I don't know. What is, what is Skeptico 237? Let me look it up. <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. We're right in the middle of a sink. <laughs> oh, is there cool. no 237? No, there just... is. There is. And it's, it's, uh, it was a contentious episode. Oh, Patricia Churchland. Yeah. The I... room that you never go. Oh, interesting. And so didn't she hang up on you and you had to call her back and say, please finish the interview and this whole thing? But, I mean, there was a hard-line denial about, I think it was near-death experience. I'm sorry, I'm not... And that's what it was. So Dr. Patricia Churchland is a philosopher who's really crossed over into doing all this consciousness work, I guess you could say. I don't know how much work is really involved, but she's really popular among the materialistic, reductionistic, science-as-we-know-it crowd that wants to explain consciousness as, and this will be interesting, I think, to listeners who haven't heard it, as an emergent property of the brain. So, you know, this if you're if you're kind of married to this idea that science has that you are your brain, you are a biological robot, as I keep saying. As, uh, so if you're married to that idea, then there starts to, you start to bump into some hard science that just shows how stupid that idea is. So some of the people who are trying to hold on to that idea but grudgingly give way have managed to meander into this idea of Oh no, it may not be this one-to-one, you are your brain. It's an emergent property of your brain. So emergence is like um, the, the example that my friend Bernardo Castro uses is a sand dune, right? So if you go out and you see those beautiful sand dunes and you go, wow, you know, who made those? You say, well, those just emerge, right? You have sand, you have wind, you have certain weather conditions, and voila, a, a sand dune has formed. So some of the folks, philosophers like Churchland and other really prominent people, have suggested that maybe that's what consciousness is. Maybe if you get enough of those neurons firing and other things happening up there in that mush, consciousness just kind of emerges, you know? <laughs> which again would be okay, except in the case of sand dunes, we can point to the fundamental elements that build it. It's sand, it's wind, it's certain conditions. We can recreate it. We can say this is how it emerges. We can't say exactly how it emerges because it's very complex, but we can at least talk about the, 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 how the fundamental elements that do it. We can do no such thing when it comes to consciousness. And the idea is really another absurd kind of stopgap measure just to put people, kind of set them aback when they go, oh, you know, that's, that's craziness. Consciousness is an illusion. They go, oh, it's not an illusion. It's not an epiphenomenon of the brain. It's an emerging property of the brain. It's bullshit. It really is. So <laughs> when I called Churchland on it, and then she pushed back a little bit, and 
I really think, and I know when I listen to the interview, it, it, it is uncomfortable. You know, it was uncomfortable for me. It was certainly uncomfortable for her. But she pissed me off, and I, I wasn't going to let her off the hook. Because the other thing she had done is she had just severely misquoted one of the leading near-death experience researchers, a guy named Dr. Pin Van Lommel, who is a guy from Holland, cardiologist, like a very eminent cardiologist who had enough people, you know, if you're a cardiologist, you deal with death, right? I mean, you got people who have heart attacks, a lot of them die. And you're there, you're resuscitating these people. And he had some people who had survived and had come back and said, hey, doc, I was out of my body. I saw what you did. I heard what the nurse said. So He's a guy in the medical profession who started hearing these stories of near-death experience, and he wasn't going to let it go. So he, it became really a, a, a lifelong mission for him. He did a tw like a 20-year study in all these hospitals in Holland and published in one of the top medical journals in the world, The Lancet, this incredible work, and he concluded that the what we're talking about here, that there's no reasonable way to jam this back into this dopey, you are your brain kind of thing. Well, Churchland completely misquoted it. She turned it around and said, no, this guy says that's not what it means. And I called her on it. And that's when she hung up. And then I called her back and she claimed to have some kind of technical problems, which was, you know, I've done enough of these interviews. When I can hear the dog barking in the background, then I usually assume that the mic works, even if the person claims they, the mic isn't picking up their voice. That usually doesn't work that way. So, so what is what is going on then? <laughs> this is the thing. Is there? I mean, what are you discovering? Is there an agenda? Why? What are these the the high priests of the the paradigm, and they're not going to let go of this? How do we understand this? I don't know. That's a tough one. You know because. I do think that I, I, I've become much more open to conspiratorial understandings of the way things work. Um, and I think you, you have to. You just, you just have to because they're all over the place. And if you just want to have this kind of Pollyanna blinders on view, you're going to miss stuff. But by the same token a lot of times it's a lot simpler than that. It's just go along to get along is 90% of it, right? So, I mean, if you're anywhere in academia, you just have to do what you're told, you know? I mean, it's hard to get those jobs. It's even harder to keep those jobs. You just basically do what you do what you're told. And stuff like this, which really doesn't have any kind of immediate um, uh, quantifiable, not really quantifiable, but an ability to turn it into a, a money-making kind of thing. You know, if anything, it, it, it disrupts the current economic structure, right? Because it, it, it would undermine a lot of systems that are in place that already work, and you don't want to do that if you're going along to get along with the system. So the system kind of rides itself. The, the other part of your question, though, I think, and I keep asking you guys questions, you aren't answering them. I want, to know how, <laughs> I want to know how this relates to SyncBook. But what I think that the real effect of this is that it leaves us feeling disempowered. 
And it is a way to regain some of that power, to go out and just say, wow, this is bullshit. And even if 95.7% of other people are either playing the game or disinterested or whatever, I've seen it. I've seen that it's bullshit. And I just got to call it as straight out what it is. And then we can move on and figure out what it means. But there's just a lot of work in just stripping away the fact that it is bullshit and how it's affected us to have to kind of paddle through this river of crap to get at anything close, uh, anything close to reality or truth or any of those ideas. Well, I'll tell you what I can about how this relates to sync, but I'll have to use another individual who we interviewed, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. Um, he talks a lot in Authors of the Impossible and Mutants and Mystics about how people realize or one, one becoming aware that they are a character in a story and then actually starting to authorize the story. So, I mean, I'm, I, I like the way you keep talking about the voice in our heads and being aware of the voice in their heads and that the actual listener to the voice is consciousness or you or, you know, however you would like to phrase it. But I, I want to think, I, I want to ask what you've done to like actually authorize that voice in the head or, or, you know, how do you make the water boil? What are, I, I hate to go all the secret on it, but do you have like little magic things that you try as far as trying to control the universe around you? I don't. And, you know, maybe that's why I'm the right person to be picked to do this, Will, because, you know, I'm really not, I'm on the very low end of having any kind of uh, <laughs> mystical kind of experiences. I've just approached it from a straight on, you know, follow the data kind of thing. So, okay. So, I, and I'm, and I'm weird have, do you have, uh, have you had phenomenal experiences at, at all? I mean, very near minor death, ones. No, no near death. No near death. Synchronicities, sure. You know, those are just tricky. To nothing, nothing major. You know, on a scale of one to ten. Mm -hmm. You know, the synchronicity is not what brought you to doing skeptico and and why science is wrong and so forth. I mean, there's nothing that led you there. You know, what's interesting. I want a little bit of history on you. Uh, the things that I read say that you you were a successful entrepreneur. What were you into before? Computers. So I was really just kind of a straight-ahead money-making guy, you know, MBA, uh, went to work at a, as an IT consultant, went back to school, thought I wanted to get a PhD, then started my own IT company. I was just doing that, man. I just wanted to make money. Um, but I always did have this interest. I had this question about this spirituality thing and whether there was any reality to it. So... That's when I when I had a chance to go and kind of investigate this stuff on my own. That was really my straight-up question. I was coming from a very materialistic kind of perspective, but saying, okay, you guys say you're right. Is there any reality to this? And it's just like pulling on a string, you know, and just, hey, where does this go? And they're like, whoa, where, what is, what's going on over here? Mm. So there's a, an, epi, an always record episode 98. They talked to Tom Campbell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. Uh, I think Doug and I were just talking, Doug and I were just talking oh. about that. That could be another so, sink here, guys. 
<laughs> but anyways, he made the he made the connection that um that consciousness is like a video game when when everybody is on online playing a certain video game or whatnot and each individual has their own data stream but to like out of body experience is sort of like realizing that you're the person playing the video game there's a consciousness to the elf and there's a consciousness you're like the consciousness that controls the elf but I realize, like, there's there's a formula, even though it's a free world, like, you can hop on your little cowboy horse and ride across there and go see what's on the other side of the map if you wanted to. But there's a storyline, right? So there's a storyline of, like, this is what you have to do. You have to go and talk to this person next, and then they send you here, and then they send you here to actually follow the story outside of this free. Well, synchronicities, to me, are, like, the little the little things in the story that tell you that this is part of the story that you're not just doing something random or or whatnot and so i i I see i mean do you think that you were born to do what you were doing now i mean are you part of the story somehow i don't know i'm very keen on again and i don't want to project something onto you that i i heard from your show but i'm keen to the metaphor you know, and uh, Kripal, who I think is just great. I really, he's just a great guy and he's so smart. And uh, every time I talk to him, I learn something. But, you know, when I, when you talk to Jeff Kripal, he's big on the, you know, both and kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. And th- then I think comes into play here in, in a way that we can't tease out, you know. So am I authoring this? Is it being authored by someone else? I don't know. Are synchronicities real? Yes. Are they metaphorical in the sense that I can't pin them down? That's a problem I have with Tom Campbell, who Doug and I were talking about. I interviewed and I messed up the the audio and never got it out. You didn't have the audio when the interview was done. But when you get too pinned down to, oh, it really is like virtual reality, and you know, every sixteenth of a second, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, we're just not. From a, we're not in a vantage point, I think, to say those kind of things. All we can do is push ourselves up to the edge and say, wow, you know, there's this huge mystery out there that I can now see because I've kind of walked through the fog. And th- that's where I think we wind up is there's the mystery. Go solve it, you know, sync up to it or not. But it's just a tool. It, it seems like we have a, a lot of knowledge these days, but we may have lost wisdom in the process. Do you think, or do you or, agree or with that? Or is this the process? Or, you know, I don't know. Again. And can we get it back? Or maybe we haven't lost it. I don't know. I, I don't know either. I mean, I, I think it, it helps to, certainly probably a good idea to, to look around at all the people we've dismissed <laughs> as being, you know, oh, well, we passed them long ago. You know, they never knew what they were talking about. It might be worth it to go back and look at some of those wisdom traditions and some of those people who discovered a lot of things because maybe in their trailings of wisdom there, we can find something useful. Yeah, there's a strange. I'm I, I'm sensing this right now. The strange disconnect of the the nature of science is to be open and exploring, but at the same time, it's so certain that it knows everything. I don't know how those that contradiction, how you can have a tool with that at its core. I think that's a 
An interesting point. I take it one step further. If you were going to run the machine, the machine being the world, would you want it? Would you want to run it with a freewheeling kind of experimenting, kind of oh new discovery kind of thing, or would you want to run it with, hey guys, keep that freaking machine going just the way it is. Make sure none of the flywheels come off. Make sure that baby just keeps cranking out the way that it is. Would you be open to new, potentially disruptive technologies, innovations? Or would you really just want to kind of say that you are and just keep things going the way that machine is running? I don't know. To me, the answer is pretty clear. Do you think that's what you'll be exploring in Skeptico 3.0? I don't know. You, we are Skeptico 3.0. So for real, for uh, for us, you know, to connect, to have this dialogue, to find out, and to have the the next dialogue where we really, where you guys answer these questions. I'm gonna have to have you guys come on Skeptico and get some heart, grill you a little bit. Okay. Oh, stop. Ah, yes, you need some grilling. <laughs> but we, we, you know, this is Skeptico 3.0. How do these things fit together? How do people that go and explore it in the way that you have, how does that sync up, if you will, with, you know, these other connections? Because when we compare that to what science is telling us, it's a full stop wall. No, don't do that. It's totally ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. It's pure folly. And we just have to knock down that and say, okay, that's totally off the table because that's stupid. Now, we don't know if any of this stuff fits together, but let's go see. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. <laughs> okay, perfect. You've been listening to Alex Sascaris on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. Information about the wor work of Mr. Sascaris can be found at skeptico.com. That's S-K-E-P-T-I-K-O.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And I know you heard about me. So, hey, let's be friends. I'm dying to see how this one ends. Is it